We also get the pleasure of reading the scripture for today's service. Uh, The scripture reading can be found in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 24. I see we stand for the reading of the scripture. Um, The bulletin says starting in 25, but we're actually going to go back one verse and start in 24 to give it a little context. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will, you put, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Some of you know uh, Garrett and Julie were some of the first people we met when we moved here a little over four years ago as Garrett was part of the search committee, so it's always a fun thing to reconnect. Uh, Please pray with me as we look at God's word together. Oh, gracious God, this is your word. When we open the Bible, we uh, confess and recognize that you are the one who's speaking. And so, Lord, our desire and prayer right now is to be able to listen, to hear you in your word. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see you, and change our hearts as we feed on your gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we're partway through a series asking kind of the big question of, What difference does the gospel or the good news of Jesus make for all of life? Which is a very big question. And so we've broken that down into smaller sections of what difference does the gospel make at home or at church and so on. And right now we're asking the question of what difference does it make at work? At what we do uh, day in and day out in our nine to five uh, daily grind. And there's a, there's a cruel irony sometimes that a preacher will come up against. You know, as I'm 
setting out and kind of planning ahead. You know, our normal habit is to, to work through books of the Bible, but we've been looking at this series, and so asking the question, what texts, what questions are going to be helpful in helping us understand how the good news of Jesus applies to work, and you kind of you plan ahead, and you're praying, and you're thinking, and then you come to that passage the week of, and you do your study, and your, and your prayer, and your preparation, then all of a sudden you realize that what you're planning to say to the congregation is something you need to hear far more desperately than any of them. That was basically my week uh, with this question of balance at work and home and church. I have spent the last two weeks freaking out, essentially, about how overwhelmed I am with everything going on. Uh, you can ask my wife about it. Uh, and, and the fall, you know, is, is a busy time of year. You know, there's ministry starting, and there's kids going back to school, and there's a new website, and yada, 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 yada. And so I've basically been operating in panic mode for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, you feel like everything is spinning out of control, and you it's up to you to keep it all together, you know, family and work and, and kids and, and school and church and everything else. And when I do that, which is more often than I should, uh, when I do that, I am not very much fun to be around. I, you know, get crabby and irritable and short-tempered and could be a downright selfish jerk, if I'm honest. Uh, so just know that as we look at this this morning, I need to hear this as much, if not more, than anyone else, which frankly is true about every sermon. But that said, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who needs to hear what we're going to talk about with this elusive quest for so-called balance in my life, in my work, in my you know, home life and church and other things. And part of the problem is that we've allowed our world to become so stinking busy about everything. Now, the average worker put in 162 more hours per year in 2000 than the average worker did in 1967. So if you think about that, in just, you know, 30 or so years, we added an entire month's worth of work to our average load. The average American gets two and a half hours, fewer hours of sleep per night than a century ago. About 40 million Americans get fewer than six hours of sleep per night. But the problem with that isn't just that it happens, but that we actually boast in those kinds of things. We wear our busyness like a badge. It's kind of this, you know, mark of, of something. You know, when somebody asks you that generic question, so how are you? How many of us, our go-to word in that is, I'm busy. I'm crazy busy, real busy. And, and it's as if, you know, we find our identity in this. You know, because if you're busy, you must be important, right? You've got people depending on you. You've got people to see, places to go, work to do, people counting on you. Things that if you don't do, no one else will, nay, no one else can do. You know, so we're busy find our identity in our busyness. And, and so what this usually means for us, and stop me if I'm boring you, be, if, no, if this doesn't connect to anybody, what this usually means is that our calendars and our commitments end up ruling our lives. We're driven by our planners. 
we have obligations at work. Obviously, you have a job, you've got obligations for it. You need to be on time. You need to do a good job. We need to be a blessing to our colleagues and our companies, as we've been talking about the, ba- the past two weeks. And we have deadlines and quotas to meet. We have clients to contact. We have work that has to get done, even if it means putting in extra hours on the evenings or the weekend. There's just no way around it. It's a nice gesture that the government wants to give us a day off tomorrow, but that doesn't mean we have less work to do. It just means we have less time to get it done in. So we have obligations at work, but we have obligations at home as well. I mean, the menial tasks like laundry and lawn care, uh, they don't do themselves. Uh, but more important than that are family relationships. So quality time with friends or with family, things like eating a meal together where we're all in the same room at the same table at the same time and there's not a screen on or something like that. Uh, A family outing that doesn't involve a trip to Target or the grocery store. And if we want our children to turn out well-adjusted and not become sociopaths or something like that, we have to enroll them in this endless list of extracurricular activities. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Crazy Busy, Uh, reflects on this. He writes, Many young parents are too sure that every decision will set their kids on an unalterable trajectory toward heaven or hell. So we panic, you know. Parenting used to be, as far as I can tell, that Christian parents basically tried to feed their kids, clothe them, teach them about Jesus, and keep them away from explosives. Now, now our kids have to sleep on their backs... No, wait, their tummies, oh, never mind, their backs, while listening to baby Mozart and surrounded by scenes of Starry Starry Night. They have to be in piano lessons before they're five and can't leave the car seat until they're five foot six. You know? But it can't be all about the kids either, though. If you're married, we need to nurture our marriage relationship as well. We need to have a weekly date night. Or for some of us, monthly. Frankly, some of us would take semi-annually right now. We need to have meaningful conversations. Even just to pray together before bed, which is a challenge when you've got about 30 seconds of consciousness after your head hits the pillow. It's not easy. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have not only work obligations and home obligations, we have church obligations as well. Your inboxes testify to this recently, the annual barrage of emails every fall telling you about all the opportunities there are for you to serve in this ministry or that, Sunday school and nursery and mentoring a young believer, providing leadership as part of a board or a committee, loving your neighbors, sharing Christ with your friends and family. Oh, and don't forget your personal devotional life, just your time in the word and prayer. And so we're surrounded by obligations, expectations, demands on our time. In essence, we find ourselves torn between competing kingdoms. The kingdom of work, and the kingdom of family, the kingdom of church, the kingdom of recreation, the kingdom of education. And none of these kingdoms are content with their current territory. They all want more of you. 
more of your time, more of your energy. Work doesn't stay at work anymore. You know, you can clock out, but the emails will continue to come. And if you don't try and knock off a few of them after dinner and before bed, then you're going to show up tomorrow like four hours behind where you were when you went home yesterday. Your children's education demands more and more time for homework at night, which pushes athletics to the weekends, such that families often now have to make a decision between attending church or enrolling their kid in soccer or hockey or baseball. And if you don't put them in sports on the weekends, you'll deprive their socialization and you will stunt their physical development and they'll never have a realistic chance of playing varsity sports in high school, which means you can kiss that college sports scholarship goodbye. But if you do enroll them on the weekend such that you end up missing church for months at a time, think about the message that you're sending to them then about the value of church, even the value of God. That having a relationship with God and his people is a good thing unless it becomes inconvenient or gets in the way of pursuing other more meaningful achievements in life. Something to think about. But it's not as though our church obligations stay within the border of Sunday mornings either. Though I'm not sure Jesus ever intended that. Uh, There's midweek home groups and youth groups. During the week, there's Awana or crew. There's this thing of always living on mission, whatever in the world that means and how realistic that can be. You know, I'm supposed to be a good employee, a good parent, and a full-time missionary at the same time. Good luck. And so we feel this weight of being caught between competing kingdoms, competing demands on our time. And what happens, the result is that it becomes this vicious cocktail of anxiety and bitterness and guilt. I always feel like I'm failing at everything because I can't keep all of it up. And I feel anxious about trying and and guilty when I fail. I drop a ball or I have to say no to somebody. And then eventually the unrealistic nature of it all catches up and I just get bitter and jaded about the whole enterprise, which can fuel cynicism or depression, or any number of unhealthy or sinful ways that we might try and escape from the rat race and compensate for our sense of failure. Nobody can sustain this, this world that is our kind of normal status quo. No one can sustain this. And so we have to come up with a solution. Enter the quest for balance. That's the ticket, right? We just need balance in our world these are all good things and and so we got to find a way to kind of keep them all together in a healthy sustainable way that's our typical solution we need balance and so we we try to organize our lives we might try and discover what's that magical proportion for each different aspect of life is it you know 50 percent work 40 percent family time 10 percent church right I mean, 10%, that's a biblical number there for church, okay? So we try that. Or we might try to prioritize. So God first, it's the Christian answer. Got to put God first, then family, then work. But what does that really mean? Does that mean that I have to complete all of my God obligations before I think about my family, and then complete all my family obligations before I show up for work? Because that's not going to go over very well. 
Or we simply just try to get more organized. We download an app. That's what I need. I need an app to organize my life and, and my schedule, and we coordinate across the family. And organization's great. And let me tell you, I could use a little bit more of it. But no app is going to tell you what to do when these competing demands on your life clash. We know something has to change. This cannot be normal. And so we pursue balance as our solution, but it's a manufactured solution if we're honest. It's a solution that comes not from God, but from us. Because it doesn't actually work. Balance doesn't actually work. There's no magical proportion out there. Priorities alone will not create harmony. You're still going to be leaving out important stuff and feeling guilty about it. Balance, frankly, is the wrong category. Because it's simply trying to split our time between multiple masters none of whom are ultimately going to be satisfied with our performance. We don't have a balance problem. If we look at this dilemma through the lens of Scripture, what we have is a worship problem. We are trying to serve multiple masters at the same time. We're looking to the wrong things to give us life and meaning, and we're depending on our own strength to try and pull it off What we need, frankly, is a complete overhaul in our perspective of this question. And that's what Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, which is part of his Sermon on the Mount. If you're not still there, go ahead and turn there again, Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the best-known parts of Matthew's Gospel. It stretches from chapters 5 through 7, and it gives us a picture of what life looks like as part of God's family. What, you know, life looks like as members of his kingdom. What it means to live under the reign and rule of Jesus in joyful, loyal submission to him. And we're jumping into the middle of the sermon in chapter 6 where Jesus is discussing what true loyalty looks like in a world of competing kingdoms. So the problem we feel daily with this demand, this, this being torn between competing kingdoms, this is not new. Okay, this was happening in Jesus' day, and it really goes all the way back to the garden, this temptation to try and serve more than one master. Uh, and Jesus addresses it here in the sermon specifically with respect to money and possessions. That's the main topic he's talking about, though, as we're going to see, it really applies to any competing kingdoms we find ourselves torn between. And so Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There can only be one king in our lives. Only one supreme object of our devotion and worship. And only God deserves to be that king. He made us to be his children and servants of his kingdom. And even when we reject him as king or cease to treat him like king, it's not as though we are no longer have a king in our lives, that we're no longer creatures of worship. We're simply taking our loyalty and worship 
that belongs to him and giving it to something else. That's what happens. Or, as is often the case, we're trying to divide our loyalties between God and something else. So serve God and money, or God and school, or God and work, and God and family, God and ministry. But ministry is not God. And therefore, I should not treat it like God, looking to it to tell me how to live, looking to it for my identity, my meaning, my purpose. And your spouse is not God. Neither are your kids, nor your job, nor your education, nor your vacation. None of these things, though we're tempted to worship them, none of these things deserve your supreme affection and loyalty. And trying to serve them at the same time as God, trying to find your, your, supreme, your, your security, your significance in them, as well as in God, that only leads to this whirlwind of anxiety that we're all too familiar with. And that's exactly how Jesus describes the experience of trying to serve two kings at the same time uh, or being torn between competing kingdoms. Look at how he instructs his followers again and again in this passage. What is it he's warning them against? Verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, learn about your body, what you will put on. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. What what is it that happens to us when we divide our loyalties between God and something else? Anxiety, bitterness, frustration, guilt. There is an inverse relationship between trusting God and living with anxiety in our lives. The more you trust and serve God, the less worried you're going to be about all that stuff. The less you trust God, the more anxious you're going to be about all that other stuff. And so why are we then tempted to divide our loyalty? Why is this so easy for us to slip into? Where does it come from? Well, it's interesting, if you look in verses 25 to 32 at the reasons Jesus gives for not being anxious, that kind of reveals to us where this anxiety often comes from. And we see three, at least three here. So first, we're tempted to divide our loyalties between God and something else when we have a narrow view of life. That's the first reason we divide our loyalties and find ourselves anxious. We have a narrow view view of life. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, that's the kind of verse you want to break out in the morning before school when you're arguing with one child about eating their breakfast and the other child about what they're going to wear that day. You know, is not life more than food and more than clothing? I mean, are you really going to die if you can't wear your One Direction t-shirt today or if you have to eat three more bites of cereal? Is this, is this worth all of these tears right now? But that's way easier said than done when you think about it because it is so easy to convince ourselves that life really does consist in our, our clothing or our job or our education or our children's success, that 
all will be lost if we don't make the varsity team or land that promotion. Like, this is really what it was all about. But that is a very narrow view of life, isn't it? That all of it hangs on this, really? And if I slip into that view, I'm tempted to divide my loyalty between God and whatever it is I'm hoping in, whatever it is I'm serving. If not, to try and completely usurp his throne and take it all over uh, together. And that only leads to anxiety and frustration. So a narrow view of life, that's one of the reasons we're tempted to divide our loyalty. The second way is when we have a big view of ourselves. That is, when we take upon ourselves that, the things that we cannot actually control or accomplish. We take responsibility for these things. We rely on our own strength and our own effort and ingenuity to try and tame the rat race and control the outcome of our lives. We have a big view of ourselves. It's up to me. But here's a little cold water for your ego in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Now, all of my temptation to kind of control the world, and really, at the end of the day, there's nothing I can actually do with that. We're not really in control. For all of our anxiety, all of our effort to try and run things, we are pitifully impotent. And therefore foolish in trying to convince God to kind of scoot over a little bit and share his throne with us. So beware of a big view of yourself. It's going to lead you to anxiety. It's going to cause you to split your loyalties. But a narrow view of life and a big view of self come ultimately from a small view of God. That is the root problem in all of this. And that's the third and ultimate reason that we try and divide our loyalties and find ourselves caught in this rat race of anxiety. We see that in verses 26 and then 28 through 30. So look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I mean, If God cares about the birds and and has the power to feed them, don't you think he cares more about the children he made in his image? So why don't we live as though that's true? That God really is powerful. He really does care. He applies the same logic to clothing in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And there at the end of verse 30, he puts his finger on the problem. O you of little faith. We have a small view of God. A God who's either too distant to care, too distracted to notice our problems, or too weak to do anything about it. And so, therefore, he needs our help to do his job. That is little faith in a big God. But a big God he is. 
and we can trust him with our whole hearts, with an undivided loyalty. And that, according to Jesus, is the alternative to this anxious rat race. He summarizes in verses 31 to 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God is not asking us to find a way of balancing competing loyalties He's asking us to give our supreme loyalty to him and to bring everything else in life under his authority, under his provision and care. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and see that the rest of it really does sort itself out. What does it mean to seek first his kingdom? Well, it means quite simply seeking to live under the authority of Jesus, our king to trust him in all that he promises, and to follow him in all that he commands, to surrender our lives under the authority of Jesus our King. It means that his priorities become our priorities, that the purpose of our life is folded into the purpose of his kingdom, to make disciples, to display the glory and beauty of God to the ends of the earth. It means forsaking all other competing kingdoms and glories for his kingdom and glory. And that any interaction that we have with these competing kingdoms, we do as an ambassador and representative of the true king. So listen carefully there. This does not mean that we hit the eject button on this world and pull out of everything for some sort of cloistered life. That would be a gross misreading of the Sermon on the Mount. It means living out our days in a fallen world with these competing kingdoms surrounding us, but doing so in complete dependence on Christ and as a representative and servant of his kingdom, a kingdom which he established with his own blood and through his own resurrection. And when we seek first his kingdom, we find that several things happen. Sinclair Ferguson describes two of them. First, we find that all we need, he will provide. He really does have the power to do that. He has never failed one of his children. All the clamoring over food and clothing, God has it covered. You don't need to serve money in order to eat. He's a big God. Second, Ferguson says that many of the things we thought we needed we now discover that we did not really need and do not now want. At last, in place of anxiety, we find contentment. But I think we can add a third, that when we seek God's kingdom first, we also find the perspective we need for navigating this chaos of our busy lives. And there are a few brief principles I want to leave us with as we close in terms of putting that into practice. First, in seeking God's kingdom, it is utterly imperative that we keep first things first. And by that, I mean time with God in the word and prayer. Think of the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 10. 
Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now think about that. Serving Christ, that's a good thing. Martha wasn't sinning in her desire to be a good hostess to the Lord of creation. That's a good thing. It's an important thing. But it is not the first thing. There's you know, so much that we need to get done every day. I mean, we wake up behind schedule. And they're good things. But notice how Luke describes Martha. He says she was distracted with much serving. She was anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing was necessary. And Mary chose that one thing, sitting at her Lord's feet. Here's the the main point here, that there is no way to keep a kingdom perspective without spending time with the king. It's simply not going to happen. And we do that primarily through the word and prayer, through listening to God in scripture and talking to him in prayer. And I personally find in my own life, there is a direct correlation between the extent of my anxiety and self-dependence and the quality and consistency of my time with God. When I'm not sitting at Jesus' feet consistently, I am so easily distracted by everything that needs to get done. And I become anxious and troubled with many things, as he puts it. But when we spend time with the king, that's where we get this perspective on knowing how to discern between good things and better things. Notice that the question for Martha and Mary wasn't just about what's the right thing to do. They were both good things, but one thing was better. And that's the question we need to learn how to discern between as we try and juggle this rat race in life. It's all good things for most of us. But what is better? What thing is best? You cannot do everything. As much as we wish, seeking God's kingdom first isn't going to magically clear your day planner. It's not. But... Because my identity no longer hangs in the balance of serving and pleasing multiple gods, but is secure in the sufficiency of Christ, the question is no longer what percentage of time should I give this or that. The question is, what is best for me to do right now? According to the values of Christ's kingdom. What is best in light of the authority and purpose of Jesus? What is best for my soul, best for my children, best for my neighbor in light of Jesus' authority and kingdom? What's going to bring the most glory to God? And I can be content in saying no to these other things and not have to feel guilty about them because I'm doing what is best. And by the way, that doesn't mean that church things are always going to be the right answer. Sometimes we, we kind of think that serving God means doing a church activity. And obviously... 
we hope that our church activities are all about serving God. Otherwise, we're kind of wasting our time with them. But sometimes doing what's best means saying no to an activity and yes to your family. Or no to leading this this year so that you have time to spend with non-believers. Balancing work and home and church and all the other competing demands of life is not so much about getting my proportions correct, but surrendering everything under the lordship of Christ. And finally, one of the most practical things that we can do for both our schedules and our souls is to not shortcut our Sabbath. Not shortcut our Sabbath. And I'm not talking about just showing up for church. I'm talking about taking a day away from our regular work. Not because it's a good way to catch up on all those other things, but because it's a necessary reminder that you are not God. You think about it, you know, some of us have no problem taking a day off. Some of us have a problem with laziness. It's getting to work and working hard that's the problem. Many of us, it's hard to actually step back and take a day off of work, not checking my email every hour and, and checking in and so on and so forth. And I recognize there are different views about how the church applies or observes the the Sabbath now that Christ has come. But whatever shape it takes, one thing that's obvious, it's really hard to actually do. It's really hard to stop and step back. Why is that? Why is it so hard? Because I still have work to do. Won't it be there when you get back? Yeah. Okay, so, so what's really going on? Why is it so hard? We push ourselves beyond our limits because we believe that if we don't, the world is going to fall apart. The company will implode. We have a big view of ourselves and a small view of God. That is why God gave the Sabbath. It's not just about rest or avoiding burnout. Those are good things. But God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. Taking a day off is a regular reminder that God is God and I am not. And this world will keep spinning without me. The business will keep working even if I'm not there right now. He doesn't need you to run the company or to rule his world. You know, it's, it's an extremely impractical thing when you think about it. Think about how much more we could accomplish with 52 extra days of work every year. Uh, we could be killing it. Why? What, what, what practical sense does it make for the good of our business or our family to actually take that time away? God is saying, it may not make sense, but I need you to trust me. I'm God. You're not. Stop. Step back. Remember that. Surrender your life under my authority, and these things will be added to you. So balancing work and home and church and all the other competing demands of life is not so much about priorities and percentages, but surrendering everything to the Lordship of Christ. Do not be anxious, but seek first his kingdom. Keep first things first. Word and prayer. Learn to discern the difference between what is good and what is better. And don't shortcut your Sabbath. You need the weekly reminder that you are not God. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have a big view of ourselves and a small view of you. And Lord, the evidence is everywhere around us. It's in our calendars. It's in our emails. Most of all, it's in our hearts. But Lord, we also confess that you are a big God and that your son is sufficient. We praise you for Christ and we pray that we would depend on him and not on ourselves in all of life, Lord, not just our work, but all of life. Would you give us the grace to do that? In Jesus' name.